Hi, and welcome to Power of Ten on This Is HCD. My name is Andy Pullane. I'm a designer, educator and writer and currently Group Director of Client Evolution at Fjord. The Power of Ten podcast is about design operating at many levels, from thoughtful detail through to organisational transformation, as well as changes in society and the world. It pays homage to the famous Ray and Charles Eames' Powers of Ten film, which showed how each Power of Ten Zoom level contains its own complexity, ecosystem and details. But they're all interrelated. In this podcast, I talk to guests from a broad range of disciplines about the intersection of design with technology, psychology, organisations, culture and society. My first guest is Jeff Gotthelf. Most people will know him from the books Lean UX and Sense and Respond that he co-wrote with Josh Seiden. Jeff and I had a fantastic conversation about the challenges that design and production teams face in that continuous cycle of development, but also the challenges for leadership in those organisations and indeed the organisational structure itself, from procurement and HR right through to a shift in industry. But my favourite story is the one of the human cannonball. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Andy, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I just gave you the very short kind of intro. Maybe you could tell people who may not have heard of you, although it seems hard to believe, what you do. I used to be a designer where I was designing software. I did product management work. I led design teams. I led software development teams. And what I realized initially was that design and product and software development had a, an issue. They had a challenge. This was about 10 or 12 years ago, which was how to bridge this whole agile gap together. In doing so, we successfully, Josh Seiden and I successfully wrote a book called Lean UX. Lean UX reframed the nature of trying to force design into Agile and really reframed it as a, as a cross-functional collaboration with the customer at the center of that equation. Now, the fascinating thing that's happened since then is we've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback. The book has been out for over six years, near, actually nearly six years at this point. And the feedback over the years has basically boiled down to, this is great stuff, we'd love to work this way, but my boss won't let me work this way, or my company doesn't work this way. This is just not the way that we do things. And to us, to Josh Seiden and myself, this was a real opportunity that we saw in the market to be a little tongue-in-cheek and, and certainly pun intended. We sensed that feedback and then we responded to that feedback with a book, another book called Sense and Respond. And really that was a business book targeted at the leaders of teams, the leaders of organizations, aspiring leaders to say, look, the world has changed. The nature of product development, whether you make physical products or services or digital products, has fundamentally shifted. And there's a new way of working that requires a customer-centric design and product-led way of building products and services and so forth. And what I do today is I work with teams at both levels. So I work with organizations that have teams that are struggling to build cross-functionally collaborative, customer-centric, product-led processes and teams. So I do that very tactical training and coaching work. And then at the executive level, I work with the bosses to help them understand how they need to change what they do to support this new way of working. How do you create the culture and the incentive structures and the performance management systems that allow this type of good design, product development, software engineering work to actually take place? So that's what I do these days. So you're working at two levels of, of Zoom, at least. Exactly. So do you ever actually combine those? How, is there ever a sort of sessions where you've got both groups of people together, or, or do you deliberately have each one separate? 
I don't do it deliberately, <laughs> but, <laughs> but sadly, that's what happens. It's really interesting. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been with a client and I'm brought in by a leader, somebody in a leadership position, and they will introduce me and we'll kick off a two-day class or whatever, or a coaching engagement, and they'll say, this is Jeff, he's really smart, and everything he's going to tell you is really important. Now, I have to go. <laughs> so sadly, I rarely have the team level folks and the leadership folks in the same place at the same time. It happens the other way around too, right? I mean, I guess that's what you're talking about with Lean UX, which is the team leads get you in for something quite tactical. And then they're going, oh yeah, but the people who are really not here, I mean, it's always the way, right? The people who aren't there are really the people who should be there. A hundred percent of the time when I finish some kind of engagement with a product team, someone will say, I wish my boss was here, right? Every time, every, without fail, 100% of the time, right? If only this VP or that person could have been in this class, we'd be so much further along. Now, I want to delve sort of back into that a little bit and actually talk about some of the structural stuff. But um, tell me the human cannonball story. <laughs> I love the story. I love the story only because it's one of those things, you know, where... Looking back on it now, it's been 24 years now since this actually took place. And it's one of those things where, in hindsight, I'm thrilled that I took the opportunity. And at the time, it seemed an absolutely ridiculous thing to do, a stupid thing to do. Um, so it's the final semester of university for me, undergraduate university. And I'm graduating in a month or so. And there is, and I don't really have a plan, honestly. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a job waiting for me. And so I get a call from the school, the university, and they say, listen, to give you a sense, I was majoring in a degree called mass communications. The year is 1995, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, electronic media production was my area of concentration. So I, 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 I was going into audio production. That's, 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 that's what we're doing right now, right? Like, exactly. you're, back in, you're back at home. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Looking, looking at, at waveforms on my screen, which is basically what I was doing back then. And so I get a call from school and they say, listen, we've got a gig for you. Do you want a gig? And I said, sure, I don't have anything planned. And they said, look, the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus is coming through town. I was going to school in Virginia in the United States. And they're, uh, they're coming through town and they need a sound engineer. Do you want to be the sound engineer? And I said, absolutely. I think I do, but the circus? Uh, and so I, I called my folks and my folks said, yeah, do it. And I was like, okay, I didn't have any plans. So I joined the circus. So that's where the human cannibal concept comes from. And so I spent six months on the road touring with the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus on the East Coast of the United States. Now, look, I have hundreds of stories from those six months, as you might imagine, and which is great, right? It gives me, it gives me a nice kind of backlog to, to fall back on whenever I need a, a good icebreaker with somebody. But the human cannonball story is my favorite. So I have to give you a little bit of context, right? So the human cannonball was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, American football, kind of the, the stereotypical... Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. Exactly right. That's exactly who he was. And he worked four minutes a day. We had two shows every day. So his act was two minutes long. They would roll in this red truck that had the cannon mounted on it. They would aim the cannon. He would climb up into it. He would wave goodbye. And the ringmaster would fire him. He'd fly across and he'd land in a net. 
on the other side of the the circus tent. And so this, he's got a lot of downtime. <laughs> he's only working four minutes a day. And so he and I strike up a conversation one day and I said, hey, how do you, you know, how does one become the human cannibal? Right? There's no, what do you put on your CV? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I, don't, I don't know if there's a LinkedIn for circus acts. And so uh, he says, look, he goes, let me tell you the story. And the story, believe it or not, starts with the previous human cannibal, as most of these stories start. And the previous human cannonball was, you know, he was again kind of this, this Flash Gordon type. And the way that the previous human cannonball would determine where to put the net every night, because remember, we're, we're doing two shows, maybe for two days in every location, and then we'd go to somewhere else. And so the way that they would determine where to put the net to catch the human cannonball every night was fairly basic. They would build a tent, you know, the night before. They would drive the cannon truck in. They'd aim the cannon. They'd shoot a dummy, a mannequin, that weighed the same as the previous human cannonball. And wherever it landed on the other side of, of the tent is where they'd put the net. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Now, look, that worked for years, right? The team made the assumption that, that worked for years, right? Except one night. There was one variable that changed. The truck had arrived at the tent on time, but they were running late setting up the tent because it was raining. And so they left the truck out overnight. They were going to just kind of do the, the exercise in the morning. And they left the dummy outside overnight in the rain. The next day, they did exactly what they had done every single time before. They loaded the dummy into the cannon, they aimed it, they fired it, they put the net wherever the dummy landed. That evening, the previous human cannonball, who now weighs significantly less than the dummy that they fired earlier that day, waved goodbye to all of the the 4,000 children in the tent, and then the ringmaster fired him, and he sails way past the net, right? Now, the, she's critically injured. The good news is he doesn't die, but he goes home to recuperate uh, to Florida. Florida is the home of all circuses, in case you were surprised by that fact. But, it, but, <laughs> okay. but it's, it's the truth. It's where they hang out. And so he, while he's recuperating, uh, he sees his pool boy, the guy who cleans his pool. And uh, he's this other kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Flash Gordon type. And he says, hey, do you want to raise? Do you want a kind of a, a promotion from pool boy to human cannibal? So that's how this guy becomes the human cannibal, right? <laughs> and, and look, and the moral of the story here, right? The whole reason I tell this story, at least in the professional capacity, is that the previous human cannibal and his team assumed that everything was the same and that nothing was changing. They built the way that they worked on the same assumptions day in and day out without testing, without validating those assumptions. And sadly, on the day that those assumptions were no longer true, they met with tragic consequences. And the lesson here is, is that what got us here isn't going to get us there. And the fundamental assumptions that have helped us succeed this far are inevitably going to change. And the question is, are we going to wait for some tragic occurrence to learn that they've changed? Or are we going to be proactive about ensuring that we're always basing our decisions on the soundest foundations? That's the moral of the story. And arguably tragic consequences have happened, right? Yeah. Especially in the last kind of couple of years. And you've seen the kind of blow up all, all of that. And maybe we, we get back to the whole kind of data thing. But you're, I guess, uh, also saying in that story that we've moved from 
individual launches to just continuously firing that cannon in the sense of, particularly with software. And, you know, I talk about this with services too, and we have this conversation around that they're never done. They're not done in the same way as uh, when a, a car rolls off the assembly line. It, it's done. Right? It doesn't change unless it's kind of modified afterwards by people. That's right. That's right. Look, I mean, we're we're building systems at this point. Now, there's it's a double-edged sword in that there is tremendous benefit to building continuous systems. They allow us to learn continuously. They allow us to optimize continuously. They allow us to always think about how we can make things better, to always question whether we're doing the best possible work, whether whether we're delivering the best possible value to our customers. But at the same time, they greatly complicate how we manage the process of building and optimizing those systems because we're moving away from a binary world, right? So you gave the example of a car, right? The production of a car is a binary event, right? At the end of the process, you either built the car or you did not build the car, right? That's all there is to it. And so that's easy to measure. And because it's easy to measure, it's easy to manage. And if it's easy to manage, it's easy to reward and incentivize and build processes and you know performance management criteria around all of that stuff. When you talk about systems, systems that never end, right? We have to make the decision when to stop working on something. So what's good enough? When are we done? Are we, like you said it yourself, we're, we're never done. So when do we stop working on something and move on to something else? And what we've done here is we've moved away from binary decision-making criteria to a spectrum, right? A, a scale that says, okay, this is finally good enough. And so the measure of success becomes not creating the output, not, you know, did we make the car? But did we get people to buy cars from us multiple times? Did we get people to participate in the systems that we've built to support the cars? Did we get people to tell their friends to buy cars from us? Right? It's these customer behaviors, it's these outcomes that become our measures of success. And unfortunately, they're more difficult to measure, they're more difficult to manage, and there's a lot of shades of gray between not good enough and good enough. So it's fuzzier. Which doesn't really suit kind of management culture as it's existed in the last certainly sort of 50 or 100 years. Exactly right. I mean, going back to the, and we use the car metaphor a lot in at the beginning of our book about uh, service design because of this idea that, I mean, predominantly management philosophy and thinking and methodology have been based in that industrial mindset, right? And not only is it a binary thing of a car's got built or not, but the design of the car doesn't change from the beginning of the assembly line to the end. So the design is decided upon and then it's constructed. And in that scenario, the person putting on the wheels doesn't have to speak to or know anything about the person who's putting on the headlights down the other end. That's right. Because that's that and that's splitting it apart into those pieces, which is obviously what that kind of tailorist uh, assembly line does. Worked so well. And so I guess, yes, it's worked so well for physical products. And it's one of the reasons why I'm always kind of allergic to the idea of um, in the digital world of people talking about, well, I'm a product designer when they're talking about digital thing, because there's so few digital products that are actually products and not some kind of system or service. Mm -hmm. 
So you've got those two systems going on at the same time. So you've got this um, management of structure and way of thinking about the world um, that's, that's very industrial, existing in a world that's radically kind of changed around it. So I guess hence the, the, the human cannibal metaphor. I've got a question for you, which is, I gave a talk uh, a little while ago, I've given it a couple of times about sort of mindfulness in in design. And I meant it both in terms of that whole kind of engagement equals addiction kind of aspect. And that, you know, a lot of design has been about, and particularly in coming out of kind of Silicon Valley has been around reducing friction, right? Because you want to sort of make it as easy as possible uh, for people to engage, which is fine for some things. It's it's terrible and it it leads to that sort of addictive behavior and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've also seen teams sprinting away and you've just sort of given this picture of uh, continuous delivery and teams constantly sort of working and they get to a point where it's never done and then they move on to doing something else that actually I've seen sort of sprint teams have worked on, you know, 20 weeks of sprints or 20 sprints of two weeks, then immediately go into another round of them. And it's like kind of they they get to the end of the marathon and then they they have to kind of uh, do it all over again. That in fact, both in daily life, whether that's kind of 10 minutes with, you know, the Headspace app or uh, that sprint teams also need a little bit of downtime. They need a kind of a moment of sort of reflection. And it's perhaps more than I think a retrospective, almost a sort of moment of quiet in their rhythm and whether that's a kind of weekly, daily or sort of monthly thing. I wonder what your view is on that, because it also seems to be. It's quite a kind of stressful environment to be in if you're not careful, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the risk for burnout is real. There's there's a quote that I've started using again in my presentations, just because this topic keeps coming back up. This is a quote from a, a designer who worked on my team eleven years ago, uh, back in New York, and he said, "When we work this way, when we are sprinting towards these undefined or unknown end states." I feel like I'm running for the bronze, is what he said, um, right? Like, I and I love I love that because it really expressed how he felt about it. I don't I don't love that he was feeling that, right? And my mm. my job was to make him not feel that. And I think this is where this is heading. Your question is heading, but he was, he said, "Look, we're running forever, but not fast enough to win." In other words, like we're just kind of doing just enough to keep going and to keep the machine moving forward without any clear state of what the goal is. And so eventually, we just get tired and we burn out. And so, yes, there, there's an absolute risk of this kind of repetitive cycle burning people out. I've seen teams handle this. I've seen companies handle this in a variety of different ways. It's particularly easy to do, easier to do if you have a cyclical business. So if you work in retail or in an industry that has sort of... Um, regular cycles, you know, regular release cycles for the products or services that you create, then there are clear areas for downtime where companies simply give teams the opportunity to just do things like hackathons or just clear their heads in whatever ways will help them come back rejuvenated. And so I've even seen, to be fair, I've even seen companies use trainings and workshops in new ways of working and new methodologies as a way to reinvigorate people. I have, I have one client that has a corporate university north of Barcelona, and it's a beautiful space. I mean, it's a gorgeous space in the countryside overlooking green fields and hills and mountains and all of these things. And they bring people, they're a global corporation, so they bring people in from all over the world to live there for a week. It's a beautiful facility. The food is good. The accommodation is nice. nice. It's really nice. It's really nice. And it gives them an opportunity to, 
to learn, to play, to meet colleagues from all over the world, to make connections with other people in different countries. They go out, they do some things together. And the hope is that they not only learn something new, but they come back refreshed and rejuvenated. And I feel like that investment is, is hugely powerful in breaking up the monotony of that sprint cycle, for sure, and refueling people with new ideas when they come back. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you could see from a, it's one of those differences between effectiveness and efficiencies, right? Where I think, you know, that industrial model has always been around efficiency and treating the organization as a machine that has to be kind of fine-tuned and to get the most out of it, you know, for the least amount of investment. And so something like that would seem to be just a a luxury. And yet I'm sure it makes people much more effective as a result. This is, and you know, it's funny you bring this up because this kind of brings us back a little bit to the, to the challenge that we originally sought to solve with Lean UX. So that original challenge was, how do you integrate design work? Just design, capital D. Yeah, yeah. Uh, capital D design work into software development. And it was seen, again, as, as this debate between efficiency and effectiveness, or at least the designers saw it, right? So the people who were struggling or actively pushing back against incorporating design work into agile software development were the in the camp of efficiency, right? Well, this stuff, it's a bottleneck. It slows down delivery. Just when you're mm-hmm. done with it, just give it to us and we'll implement it. Yeah. Whereas the other side of the argument, certainly the argument we made in Lean UX, and many, many, many other people have made this argument in various formats, right, is about effectiveness. How effective do you want the product or service creation process to be? How successful do you want it to be? And without these additional functions, these aren't luxuries, right? These are the pieces of the puzzle that make us more successful as an organization. And so, so it's, I think it, we come back to this repeatedly in, in our modern sort of agile, short cycles, continuous learning world. So one of the things that, with that is the, is the age-old problem of design's value, right? Which is, it can often be seen as a luxury and it can often be seen, and, you know, even in those, those teams, those large agile teams, the, the ratio to, of designers to developers is enormous sometimes. It's, you know, this can be sort of one to 20 yeah. or more. And design can often be seen as a luxury. And I know you've talked about experience debt and we were talking to our development teams about experience debt. And it wasn't until we put it in that way and this idea that, you know, we need to be able to iterate and we need to be able to do some thinking whilst we're making. And I think that sort of build to think thing is a really important part. And it's the bit that kind of design thinking has completely missed, which is, you know, a third of the thinking might be done up front, but most of the thinking's done whilst you're making something. Right? You, you have this, and anyone has had a, to give a speech or had a, um, a difficult breakup conversation or, a, you know, something they've thought about for ages and then they start to do it and it all goes off the rails, knows that there's a real difference between planning to do something and then the thinking that happens sort of on the fly as you do it and the discoveries you make. And I think once we put it in that experience depth, a sense, they really got it. They got the idea that we do need to slow down at this point now in order to be able to sprint fast in the right direction later. And that was a kind of, it seems very obvious to me and I wonder why it's not obvious to everyone else. I think part of it is, is because people believe there's still a strong belief in many, many corporations, particularly at the, at the leadership levels, that we are making finite widgets. And in doing so, we can predict not only what those widgets will look like, but how they will work, and, and even more so, what the, the consumers of those widgets 
will do with them and how they'll behave. Because again, we're looking at a hundred plus years of historical inertia based in manufacturing. It's how people were trained. It's how companies have managed forever. And this concept of experience debt, I think it exists in, in kind of traditional physical products, but the, the cycle time to improve that experience debt has always been something akin to the concept of the model year. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we released, you know, the, the 2018 version of our car and we got some things really right and a couple of things that we could improve on. But don't worry, we'll get them right in the 2019, the 2020, the 2021 version of the car. And we just simply don't have that luxury anymore because organizations that will wait to fix that experience debt to pay it down in that kind of time frame will get overlapped. They'll get surpassed. I mean, the barriers to entry into literally every industry at this point are so low that if you can't continuously pay down that experience debt, or I mean, and that's kind of a negative way of looking at it. I think I would tend to look at it as if you can't continuously optimize the customer's experience or the consumer's experience of whatever it is that you're building, uh, you will get overlapped. Somebody will be able to do it faster and better than you, and they will ultimately win. It's interesting as I was trying to think of industries as you were talking about that that have slower cycles. And you know, one of them is um, you know, like public transport, for example. Rail networks are really good one, right? So they are most of them should have digitized ages ago. And it's remarkable that there aren't loads and loads of autonomous trains. Yeah. Because they're on tracks anyway, right? So there's a whole load of problems that go away. Yeah. Um, and there's very few, and most of them are in airports, right, in the world. And um, it's remarkable that they haven't kind of done that because it would have made for great efficiencies. But obviously, one of the things that happens in that world is the track doesn't really change that often. Um, it's that sort of shearing layers thing. And the carriages change, you know, a bit faster, but then some of the kind of dressing inside the carriages change a little bit faster, but they don't have that kind of refresh cycle, I guess, uh, to really kind of make changes all the time and, and sense and respond, although they do in their digital stuff. But it's interesting to see what Silicon Valley has done with that when you look at their sort of approaches to mobility, which is to pick the kind of low-hanging or faster fruit, if you like, and that doesn't work as a metaphor, but, you know, of you know bikes and e-bikes and e-scooters, right? those are very kind of quick to turn around. You don't have the kind of life cycles of the development of, a, say, even cars. But look, I mean, when I work, I work with all kinds of companies. You know, I work with companies that make digital products only. I work with legacy industries like financial services and insurance. And then I also work with industrial manufacturing companies, people who make giant metal things, you know, that, that sell for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars um, and take a while to produce. And the conversation we have with them is, is exactly this one. They say, look, the things in our industry don't change that quickly. The demands don't change. That's fine, right? All that I'm going to ask you to do is to learn and iterate faster than you are today, right? So you're not going to do it as fast as Amazon. You're not going to do it as fast as Facebook. That's fine, right? Because you make locomotives, right? Yeah. Um, however, What's your cycle time for learning on a locomotive today? It's 18 months, it's 36 months, it's whatever. Okay, great. Let's cut that in half, right? If we can go from 36 months to 18 months or from 18 to nine months, that's a huge win. And so getting people to, to think about that in those terms, in, in terms relative to their world, starts to make the ideas more palatable. 
So that's a good, kind of very good Trojan horse in many respects because it's incredibly attractive because who's going to say, no, no, we want to take longer. Right, um, right. <laughs> so I'm guessing that also gives rise to a whole load of, uh, well, the need at least, or the understanding of for structural change. And, you know, given that, you know, on this show, we're trying to sort of talk about that relationship between small things having big influences. And we, we talked just before we were recording about HR and procurement. And I know you, you talk about it somewhat in, in Sense and Respond as well. How often do you end up in, in those kinds of conversations? There are two different kinds of conversations, and they're both equally as important. So let's start with HR, because I believe that the kinds of changes that need to take place in companies today to support the modern way of doing business, delivering value, capturing value, running the organization, are heavily driven and heavily influenced by the things that HR departments do. And I'm talking about both sides of the house. I'm talking about the, the hiring, the, the attract and hire side of the house, the onboarding side of the house, as well as the professional development and the retention side of the house. And so the culture that needs to take place has to be made up of hiring profiles that are open to learning, that are perpetually curious, that are collaborative, that don't seek the spotlights only for themselves. And in doing so, we have to train people in new ways of working and we have to incentivize them and provide the kind of performance management criteria that leads them to practice the behaviors that we hired them to do. And this, this includes not just, just individual contributors, but managers as well, right? Redefining the role of the manager, redefining the success criteria for a manager in a world where the manager cannot predict and instruct the team as to what exactly and very specifically to do like they have to date. And so there's a huge, huge conversation to have here with HR. And I'll tell you that every organization that I work with, when it comes to any kind of digital transformation, innovation, agility, business agility, that type of thing, you know, increasing the role of customer centricity and design, when HR is involved or is leading that conversation, we make significantly more progress, significantly faster. And it feels to me like the changes will stick rather than when HR is not present. Because you're rewiring the system. Exactly. Or part of it. Ex exactly. Otherwise, it just becomes a product development thing. And, you know, the folks in finance or in legal don't have to worry about it, which is wrong. They're both about procuring and managing resources, interestingly enough. So procurement is at the other end of that in the way that, you know, contracts get written and or evaluated as well as much as anything. But what's your experience of that? <laughs> Painful. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I was already oh, brilliant. I've had uh, only ever a positive uh, result. I'd say, so this for me is interesting, right? And I'm, I apologize to anyone who's, you know, in, in procurement who's listening to this, but I've, it always gets the eye roll, right, from almost anyone I've ever experienced, even procurement people themselves in, in organizations kind of roll their eyes and go, well, you know, that's procurement. How can it be that that's so broken? It's, again, it's, this brings us back to the roots in manufacturing. And look, I mean, the, the transaction that procurement is there to facilitate is simple, Right. We will give you money and you will give us something tangible, something concrete in return for that money. And we will write a contract to that effect, right? In a world of continuous systems, of continuous learning and optimization, where you, the change 
in consumer behavior is so rapid, where the change in technology, the underpinning medium of business is so rapid, it's incredibly difficult to predict those things. And so when it's time to sit down and go through the procurement process and say, well, we're going to give you money. We're going to hire you to do this work as a full-time employee, as a vendor, as a designer, whatever it is. What are we going to get for it? Right? And the answer, I don't know, is not sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's where the problem comes because procurement's job is to make sure that the company doesn't get screwed. And so they want to be very, very specific. I will give you this money and you will generate this output. You will generate these designs. You will generate this code. You will generate this physical device. But the reality is, is that if the organization buys into outcomes over output, creating the thing is not the measure of success. It's having a positive impact on customer behavior that is the measure of success. And so it becomes much more difficult to write an outcome-based contract. Now, look, I was lucky enough to help found and run a services organization called Neo for four years that tried to sell services this way. And, the, and how did that go? It was look, it was brutal at first because because people don't want to buy experiments and people don't want to buy I don't know as an answer. People want to buy apps and systems, and frankly, people want to buy wireframes still today, which is just bizarre to me. And journey maps and blueprints yeah, and personas. Right? right, exactly. We would like six personas and three journey exactly, maps. Exactly, right? And th they write that into the procurement contracts. And so at first, it was really difficult. And what we found is, look, you've got to find clients that, that are already thinking this way, first of all. It's very, very difficult to move a client off of uh, an old way of thinking if they're not there. But let's assume that they're willing to do it. The way that we've done this successfully is we've said, okay, the contract language was roughly something like this. We are engaging in a partnership together to build a system whose end goal is these outcomes, right? These outcomes to connect these individuals together, to move data from one place to another, whatever it is that the goal of the system is. And as of right now, we believe that these 10 features, 15 features, three features, whatever it is, right, are the best places for us to start to achieve that outcome. However, over the course of the engagement, we may learn things that alter this opinion, alter this guess, right? And we reserve the right together as a partnership to change the list of things that we will build in service of building the system that does these things, right? And look, it's so at the very least, there's something in there that says we will likely get some percentage of these 10 things that are in the contract. But then we move away from the specificity of committing to delivering those 10 things by a deadline. And the only way that this works is in true partnership and collaboration with the people who are procuring your services. They've got to be a part of the process. They've got to participate in the discovery and the design work that's taking place. They've got to learn with you so that when it's time to make the tough call to say, we're not going to build this, we're actually going to build something else, you don't have to convince them. They were there. They saw the whole thing. And, that, and that's the only way it worked for us in any kind of meaningful way. It's interesting, isn't it, all of this? Just listening to you talking about, you know, they were there, you don't have to convince them, and they're bought into all of those things. I, probably like you, have sort of taken this journey from being interested in designing a thing um, and actually telling stories. I, I also studied film and media and that's how I got into this. Mm -hmm. But then 
thinking about designing organizations. That's how it was the sort of segue into service design for me and, and services and that sort of systems view of things. And more and more, I think it's, you know, a lot of the, what we've just been talking about is really the design of organizations. Mm-hmm. But, uh, as I do this work more and more, it seems to be it's just it's all about people. And I sort of come back a, a sort of level down. And you talk about culture a lot, and obviously culture is made up of people and beliefs and behaviors, but also humility. Mm. Tell me a little bit about humility or what your kind of view on that is in, in a professional context. Yes, it's, it's a great question. I, look, I grew up in the United States, and sadly, especially today, humility is in short supply in the United States. What could you possibly be talking about? I have about? no idea, Andy. Um, but, but no, but look, humility oftentimes can be seen, at least in certain cultures, can be perceived as weakness, right? It can come across as, as a lack of vision, a lack of clarity, a lack of direction. And I'm here to tell you today that humility is none of those things. Humility is not an abdication of vision, and it's not an abdication of leadership. All humility is, is the ability to change your mind in the face of evidence. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that you don't have strong opinions. It doesn't mean that you don't have amazing expertise. It doesn't mean that you're not smart. All it means is that when you put out an idea as a leader, as an individual contributor, and that idea meets with objective, evidence-based feedback that contradicts it, it's your responsibility to change your mind, that you're open to that. That's humility. That's all there is to it. And we need that. Again, coming back to this theme of, of systems and unpredictable futures and changing consumer consumption patterns and changing technology and all of these things. You know, when I see organizations talk about their five-year plan, especially if, when it's, it's super tactical and detailed out for five years in the future, it's laughable. And I, I, I feel bad for the people who had to waste their time building out anything beyond, I'll say 12 months to be generous, but I, I believe six months really is the threshold. <laughs> Right, because it's just not realistic. You see, we just don't have that luxury anymore. There's just too much change. There's too much volatility, and so if we're looking to drive a cultural shift, if we're looking to increase the agility of our organization, humility is is the foundation upon which all of this is built. Because it just simply means that we're going to put something out there, and if we find out that we're wrong, we're going to change course. That's it. Why do you think there's such resistance to that? Being wrong, being wrong is risky. Being wrong is frowned upon. It's not, you know, how do you succeed if you're wrong? No one wants to be known as the person who's wrong all the time. I think that's part of it. You know, I, th- I think that there's this negative attribution to being wrong. Now, look, there. if you worked on something for an extended period of time and burned through a ton of money and time and people's, people's lives and then found out that you were wrong, I can see why that would have career-limiting consequences. However, again, this comes back to the great benefits, the great power of these systems that we're building. We have the ability to learn much more quickly and much more cheaply today than ever before. And so being wrong is how we learn, right? It's, yeah. it, and it's, it's how we get better. You know, and it's interesting, right? So, so you look at, um, uh, and people don't, I don't think people talk about this guy enough, and I don't know why, maybe there's something I don't know about him, but so there's Dyson, 
right? The the richest yeah. the richest man in the UK, I believe. James Dyson, yeah. Right? In his commercials, he talks about the 5,000 prototypes that failed before he came up with the breakthrough for all of his inventions. Yeah. Right? We don't talk about that enough. Like he failed 5,000 times and he's the richest man in the UK. That's Johnny, well, Johnny Ives is a famous prototyper, right? I mean, I remember reading a, an article, a profile on him when he was uh, at college, and he'd brought in, you know, for his whatever project he's working on, this kind of obviously beautiful thing. But someone went and visited him, his house, and his, in his apartment, he had like just uh, loads and loads of prototypes just lying around on the floor. Yeah. That didn't get seen. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that doesn't get, the, the process doesn't get louder enough. It's funny. Um, Years ago, I saw Eric Ries speak. This is right when the lean startup stuff was really kind of on the way up. And he used this metaphor. He always talked about movies, particularly movies where there's a team of people who build something. He said every time that the, the building process would take place in movies, they would do some kind of a montage scene, right? It's like time lapse where they... They work really, you know, they cut from thing to thing. And at the end, it's ta-da, we built this beautiful thing. And isn't it beautiful? And doesn't it work, right? And he's like, all the work was glossed over in those montages, right? All, all the experimentation, all the learning, all the, all the prototyping, all the hypothesizing, all the failing. And, yeah. and the only thing that gets celebrated is the, the eventual success. And I think that if we can shine a light, kind of expand out those montages, more publicly, and I think we are. I think some some companies are doing that. People will realize that there's there's value to this creative process. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. Um, so Monzo, the you know the sort of neo bank in the UK, they um, they had their kind of public the list of stuff they were working on. Basically, they basically sort of put their Trello board uh, for about three months. They had a kind of sprint of these are all the things which we're we're trying to kind of work on and fix. And they just put it kind of out there. But what was really nice was uh, they, they did most of them. They did about 80% of them. But they didn't sort of edit out the ones that they hadn't managed to achieve. And they, they said, okay, we've come to the end of our three months of this, and, and this is what we've done, and some of the stuff we haven't done. And I really, I really loved the openness of and what that means. I mean, that's also humility in action. Right? Where you, uh, and unfortunately, I think, you know, humility shares the same kind of word stem with, of humiliation. Right? And mm. I think there's a, that's probably part of the problem and you know language becomes such an important thing and we've touched on it in different ways here but one of the um, one of the reasons why i get kind of pedantic about the whole product versus services thing is because it language sets up a met- mental model in your head of what this thing is so when you talk about products you talk about something that gets completed and then it gets sold and once it's sold i don't really care about it anymore i've sold that thing to you and then i'm on to the next setting of things and that's why i kind of language is one of those things that really kind of makes a difference to the uh, the different zoom levels of what you're working on and talking of which where we're coming up to time if there was as a sort of final question and it can be from any sphere in in life it doesn't have to be from your work if there was one small thing that you think is sort of unrecognized as having a massive effect on life or the world, what would it be? It's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because um, because my work requires travel. And to me, between travel, work when I'm home, devices, and everything else, the thing that I have been 
and, and it's new for me. So this is, this is interesting. So it's, it's, it's a recent experiment to be proactively doing this, to be consciously doing this, is to be present. Look, I've got kids and they're growing up fast. I've got a daughter who has got two and a half more years of high school and then she's off. That's pretty scary, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, and, and I've spent the last five, six years basically on airplanes. And so for me, the, the little thing that I'm changing, that I'm actively and proactively trying to change in my life right now is just to be, to be present when I'm here. And so obviously to make, to make the effort to be here more often, that's, that's a different thing, but to be present when I'm here. And so I really, I desperately try not to be on my device when I'm hanging with my kids, when I'm hanging with my, with my wife, um, when we're doing activities together, I really work towards like, just like being in the moment with them. Because what I notice is that when I tune out, they tune out. And when I'm tuned in and, and focused, eventually, it takes a few more minutes than me usually, but they eventually put their devices down and help focus. And to me, that, that look, it creates a better experience for us here at home as a family. And I hope that it teaches them that there are times where it just really pays to be present. So that's what I hope anyway. Ask me in a year, I'll let you know how it goes. That's a very nice little microcosm of sensing and responding. Right? Exactly. So, talking of Sense and Respond, you've started a uh, a publishing house, Sense and Respond Press. Mm -hmm. So, people can, we'll we'll put the links in the show notes to that and also uh, to everything else. Tell us a little bit about what that exists for. Yeah, so Sense and Respond Press was the the outcome of a series of experiments, initially in self-publishing, having published a couple of books together with, with official quote-unquote legitimate publishers, publishing houses, Josh Seiden and I uh, realized that there might be an opportunity to self-publish some books, and not just any books, but short, practical, tactical books for busy executives. That was our hypothesis. And so we did, we did uh, discovery work, we did design work, we did research, we, we, we talked to people, and we tested by self-publishing a book called Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking. That book did really well and proved out, at least initially, or de-risked our hypothesis a bit further. And so we've launched Sense and Respond Press. It's been running for about a year and a half. We have uh, six books in publication at the moment, two to three more coming out over the next quarter or so, short, practical, tactical books, most of them no longer than 12,000 words, so about a 45-minute read, focused on the things that executives and aspiring leaders need to know today to run their businesses successfully. So we've got books on uh, managing innovation portfolios. We've got books on hiring women. We've got books on facilitation, uh, books on on doing sort of sense and response type of activities in government, in the, in the public sector. Um, and so we're, A, we're, we're super interested in getting the word out about the press and the books, of course, but we're also always looking for authors. And so if you're listening and you've got an idea for a book, you're not sure you can write 30, 40, 50, 60,000 words, um, and you think you can be concise about something that executives and aspiring leaders would need to know today, drop us a note over at senseandresponsepress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. Where else can people find you online? So I, I'm writing a ton over on Medium. So I've got a Medium profile. And then all of my stuff is at my website, which is uh, gothealth.co. So if you go to gothealth.co, um, everything else is there, links to, to Twitter, links to LinkedIn, workshops, events, links to videos. It's all there. 
Brilliant. And on, on Twitter, you're, you're Jay Boogie. Jay Boogie. Yeah. That's a lesson in uh, one, <laughs> one of those things where it's like, you know, oh, this new service came out. I'll just make up a stupid name and, <laughs> and it'll never stick because the service will never last. Here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I know. I've learned my lesson on that. Well, it, it could have been more, way more embarrassing. <laughs> Jeff, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you'll find the transcripts and links and where you can also sign up to the newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other designers around the world. My name's Andy Pallane. You can find me online as A. Pallane on Twitter and at pallane.com. See you next time. <laughs>